Hello again. Hello again, and welcome to Robert Whiting's Japan, a weekly podcast where we talk about the past, present, and future of the nation. We discuss current topics and the people that are influencing them. I'm your host, Jack Gallagher. Bob, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you, Andrew. Good, good. Uh, looks like the weather has finally turned. Yes, it is. It's cold, isn't it? I can put away my summer clothes <laughs> and pull out my winter clothes and my Uniqlo jackets. <clears throat> Uniqlo? I didn't know you shopped at Uniqlo. Yes, my wife forces me to buy stuff there because it's cheap and it's fashionable. And, and she wears Uniqlo, so we make a nice couple. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, a uh, lot going on, uh, as always, in Japan. And uh, we uh, received some sad news recently, and that was that uh, Junko Tabei, uh, the first woman to climb Mount Everest had passed away. So uh, why don't we start off uh, talking about what you know about her, Bob? Well, to tell you the truth, I didn't know anything about her until <laughs> you put it on the list. And then I talked to my wife, and she says, yes, she's a big hero among Japanese women because she was the first woman in the world to scale Mount Everest. And uh, she overcame a lot of uh, discrimination against women in mountain climbing in Japan to achieve that feat. Uh, men wouldn't climb with her. Uh, they accused her of climbing just to find a husband. Uh, <clears throat> so she started her own mountain climbing club, Women. She got funding, uh, did not enough, uh, so they, she had to manufacture her own equipment out of, you know, used uh, abandoned car uh, seat covers, that sort of thing. And, uh, and she climbed it. She was buried under an avalanche for several minutes, uh, lost consciousness, but still got up and and uh, went to the summit. And then she went on to climb all the other highest peaks in the world. So she was quite something. And she actually wound up marrying a mountain climber. So maybe that initial criticism of her was accurate, but so what? Uh, so she was a big inspiration to Japanese women. Yes, uh Interesting, and but you never you never came across her uh, in any of your uh, various uh, endeavors, interviews with uh, prominent people, and so forth. No, um, maybe I did, but I've forgotten. I mean, I feel really embarrassed about this because she's apparently an iconic figure in Japan. But that just goes to show you. Right. Um, right. Up until last year, there were people in the Democratic Party who knew nothing about Hillary's emails. <laughs> Just goes to show you. Yeah, what uh, what do you think uh, the Japanese are making of this latest uh, development uh, with the head of the FBI and uh, more emails found on uh, Anthony Weiner's wife's, <laughs> or pardon me, Anthony Weiner's computer? Uh, I'm. They're thoroughly confused. <laughs> Just like the rest of us. They have no idea what's going on. But uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, you know, worked with the National Security Agency and uh, when I was in the military. And so I know something about that. I actually worked under both the CIA and the NSA when I was here in Japan in the U-2 program. And... Uh, and other types of surveillance of Russia and China. 
And so I know about handling classified information, the different levels of classified information and what you're expected to do. And what she did was, you know, really uh, beyond the pale. Uh, any Anybody else who did what she did, I, I think uh, maybe they wouldn't have wound up in jail, but they would have lost their jobs and they would never be hired again. They would never have a security clearance again. Uh, just, you know, irresponsible. I don't know if she belongs in jail uh, exactly. I mean, she belongs in jail for some of the other things she did. But, uh, you know, you, you're, you have classified information on a private, uh, your own private personal email address on a private server. That's no doubt easy to hack. It's just... Uh, but, you know, it takes a lot of time to explain uh, what's going on and why this is relevant and uh, what she should have done and what State Department and government protocol is in situations like that. So it takes time to explain to Japanese and their eyes glaze over. But what they do understand, yeah. however, is <clears throat> the king of Morocco paying $12 million, donating $12 million to the Clinton Foundation. <clears throat> on a guarantee that Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, would fly to Morocco and take part in a conference. That's very easy to understand. Well, I think they call that an appearance fee, eh? That's right. It's also called bribery. <clears throat> <clears throat> oh, boy. Okay, uh, all right, moving on. Uh, the LDP is discussing extending the term for its leader, and uh, this means that uh, Shinzo Abe, the pr current prime minister, could end up serving as long as nine years. Uh, is that too long? What are your thoughts about this development? Uh, I think it's a good thing. It's one, the thing that's always bothered me about Jap uh, Japanese politics is the evolving door attitude to the uh, presidency of the LDP and the, uh, and the prime ministership. If you're elected president of the LDP, then you uh, automatically become prime minister uh, because the LDP usually has the majority in, the, in both houses. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, in my experience, it seems like every year they've changed or there have been periods where they change prime ministers every year. You know, somebody's kicked out because of some scandal or taking illegal campaign donations or or saying something inappropriate on NHK or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it seems to me like the LDP has always uh, uh, viewed the prime ministership as a prize that as many people as possible should share in. And uh, it's been very rare that they've had uh, prime ministers who've served, <clears throat> you know, seven, several years. Like uh, Isato Eisako was prime minister for uh, seven years, I believe. Uh, Nakasone was prime minister for, for six years. Yes, you hear Nakasone. Right. So I think it's good. You know, the United States has an eight-year limit. They used to have, you know, FDR would have served, if he hadn't died in office, would have served 16 years. Canada doesn't have uh, uh, any limits at all. France is, uh, I forget what it is, eight-year term for the president or ten? I'm not sure. I had to check, but it's pretty long. So, you know, I think that Japan is just 
uh, you know, following uh, established procedure in most developed countries around the world. I think there it's it's a good thing for their system. What about you? Well, I you know that's a good question. I mean, uh, in the states we have uh, two four-year terms, and uh, that's that. But uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's 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 like you said. There, there's been so much turnover here that it also it almost seems a bit unusual that one person could serve for nine years. And uh, I'm not so sure that uh, that that's a good thing. I, I can't you know I can't really uh, qualify it. But uh, we're just like you said, we're so used to seeing the turnover, and to think that somebody's going to be in there for nine entire years makes me wonder. Uh, you know, if that's uh, the right thing or not. But uh, I guess time will tell. So, um, well, we'll give to, you know, <clears throat> we'll be able to stay in office until the opening ceremony of the Olympics, and it will give him a chance to wear his Super Mario costume again. <laughs> Speaking of uh, speaking of the Olympics, Bob, uh, IOC President Thomas Bach was here uh, recently, and... Uh, uh, somehow kind of became involved in uh, Japanese politics uh, as this whole controversy about the venues uh, continues. Now they're talking about uh, proposing four-party talks. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Uh, sure. No, Mina-san, everybody can come in and discuss it. That's in the Japanese tradition. Uh, I think maybe they should invite, you know, officials from Brazil and China to come over too and express their opinions. You know. Let's not leave anybody out. <clears throat> I think that uh, they, you know, they've got a, this is becoming a serious problem now. They are, it's uh, six times the original estimate that they're spending. I mean, that is just a, that's an indication that there's, there's been some corruption or bribery going on. It's like they're, they're on pace to, to hit $30 billion dollars. Cost, which is, uh, you know, isn't that what the Russians spent to put on the Winter Olympics in Sochi? Actually, that was uh, 51 billion. Or 51 billion, okay. What did the last Olympics cost? What did the, the uh, London Olympics cost? Mm, you, you, uh, you've got me on that one, Bob. I can't give you a definitive answer. But, uh, oh, I have to because I don't know either. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> You know, and at this rate, it's, it's going to go up even higher. You know, that's evidence that when these construction companies made their bids uh, to get these contracts, that they lowballed just in order to, and they say, well, you know, construction costs have gone, gone up. You know, the the end is getting weaker. It's costing us more, blah, blah, blah. Uh, or, you know, the world economy is uh, in trouble, so you know, we're not making as much money as we should, so we've got to raise our fees. But, uh, but it's just typical. It happens in every Olympics. They always find a reason to understate the cost in the beginning, so they assure everybody that it will be under budget and, and <clears throat> you know, done ahead of schedule. And But it never works out that way. Same thing happened with the 64 Olympics. They wound up, you know, the whole, I think the original budget was a billion dollars, under a billion dollars, but it wound up being triple that. And they wound up, to save money, they had to build the monorail and the uh, highways, 
uh, in the city over water using pillars, which destroyed the marine life. And it's also made some really ugly scenes where the <clears throat> Nihonbashi Bridge is now uh, top, you know, like 15 feet above it by an expressway ruining the old iconic view of Mount Fuji. Uh, and the, uh, the monorail, uh, stopped, uh, had, originally it was intended for Shinbashi. They had a license for Shinbashi and they applied for another one for Tokyo. But because they couldn't afford to buy the land, the price has been driven up so much by the Yakuza and fishermen groups that, uh, they had to stop it at Hamamatsu. Which is probably the most inconvenient place you could think of in Tokyo. <laughs> I agree. No, I agree. Huh. There you go. It's just you know business <clears throat> as, as usual. Okay, so with the with the the most recent controversy of the uh, 2020 games, and that is the uh, volleyball venue, the swimming venue, and the rowing venue. What is your prediction? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think those venues will be built as originally planned, or you think they're, they're going to come up with some other solution? Well, I think now that Koike is the governor of Tokyo, who seems to have a fairly uh, common-sense attitude towards the games, she seems fairly honest and determined to block corruption. <clears throat> I think whatever is going to cost Tokyo the least money is what's going to happen. So I trust her. I don't. I don't believe that she's corrupt, or I don't think that she was as corrupt as previous uh, governors of Tokyo have been. Uh, she's like a, a Ginza mama. <laughs> That's what people say about her. But I, you know, I think she's pretty cool. Okay. Uh, now she's also involved in another issue that's uh, very close to uh, where you live, and that is the uh, Tokyo, or pardon me, the Toyosu, uh, the move of the uh, Skiji fish market to Toyosu. What uh, what's the latest with that? Well, you know, originally they did they were going to do uh, one more test. All the the tests of toxins. See, give you a little bit of history here. This the Toyosu market was built on Japan, on land that was owned by Japan, uh, the, the Tokyo Gas Company, and there were a lot of toxins in the soil because of the, the you know the various things that Tokyo Gas was doing there, manufactured gas, and so they tried to sell the land, but they couldn't. Uh, you know, because of the toxins in it. So the Tokyo Metropolitan Government came along and bought the land, and then they decided, <clears throat> you know, they capitalized on the Olympics and the, the idea of moving uh, the Skiji fish market to uh, Toyosu. The value of the land went up, and everybody made a lot of money. And, you know, some of the tests that were conducted when Ishihara was governor uh, apparently were not thorough enough. And uh, anyway, she did one more test just to make sure that, you know, the Skiji market was scheduled to move to Toyosu this month. And people, you know, fish uh, these various corporations that run the restaurants and the fish uh, market stalls had bought land or, you know, uh, paid down payments on leases. They hired people. They bought equipment and everything ready to move in. 
And uh, she ordered this test, and some people thought <clears throat> that she was the reason she was doing that was just to delay the move, so to leave the let the uh, skeezy fish markets enjoy the busiest time of the year one last time, November and December. That's when their sales really skyrocket, holiday time. And uh, but then they found out they did this. That there was alkaline and benzene, even arsenic. That there was underground ch- uh, chambers. It was all supposed to be the the topsoil or the soil <clears throat> on that spot was supposed to have been covered by you know several inches of topsoil, several feet, and uh, and it wasn't. There are these empty chambers underground, which they said they store equipment and use it as a way to conduct tests on the water. And they, you know, found out the water was contaminated. Uh, and so the public was never told about this. And, you know, as usual, they went back and nobody wanted to take responsibility. And the slightest reports said they like 12 different people or groups that were involved in this decision. But nobody knew about it. It was just a, <clears throat> a big secret until Koike became governor and ordered this one last test. Now it looks like. Uh, my sources tell me that they won't be able to move. Wow. <laughs> because, you know, even if they say, you know, what they could do is like put, you know, a three, four, five foot layer of concrete over all the topsoil. Well, I'm s- sitting here looking out the window and there's this construction event going across the way. And uh, there used to be a real long warehouse there and they tore it down. And they're going to put up a new building. But what they're doing before they did that was they brought in <clears throat> a dozen steam shovels and they dug like 10 or 20 feet down and removed all the soil because they're afraid of contamination. It's not that far from Tokyo Gas. Moved it out and then brought in fresh soil and covered it in. And then that's what they're going to do. That's what... Uh, uh, you know, the, the people at the fish market should have done, or the, the people who are constructing the area for the fish market should have done. But uh, I think even now, even if they just covered the whole area in this big slab of concrete and then built the markets on top of that, the idea, you know, of sushi aficionados sitting there imagining, thinking about the benzene, and the arsenic and, uh, you know, the whatnot underneath, I, I think is just too big a psychological barrier. So I don't know what they'll do, but, you know, the people that I know, and then they'll say they just can't do it. Uh, that, <clears throat> that there's another market opening up near uh, Skiji a few blocks away that people can move there. Uh, I've had people suggest to me that the Tokyo Metropolitan Government should move to Toyos. <laughs> Since they're the ones that insisted it was safe, and then they should rent out the land in Shinjuku and make a fortune and rent. Well, my, my question to you is, uh, you moved to Toyosu specifically because you wanted to be close to the Skiji fish market. Is that not right? <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> what are you, you going to do now? moved to Toyosu because my wife couldn't stand Kamakura. She couldn't stand the bugs and the the uh, and the mold and everything else. And uh, she's a Tokyo girl, so she wanted to move 
to the most modern part of Tokyo, which was going to be Toyosu. So here we are. I mean, we're, you know, the value of the land where we are, the value of the condo hasn't changed, hasn't gone down. But, uh, you know, she told me the other day that the, the value, the, uh, mercury in the air is seven times higher than it should be. So. If I'm not available for the next podcast, you'll understand why. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, all right, Bob. Uh, changing gears here, uh, let's talk about a very successful businessman, and that is Mr. Akio Toyota, the right. head of the Toyota Motor Corporation. What uh, What can you tell us about him? Uh, well, he was lucky enough to be born into the Toyota family. <laughs> That's what I can say. That helps. Uh, yes, it helps. I mean, if your grandfather and your father have run the Toyota Corporation, then the odds are that you have a very good chance of succeeding. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, he did go to the, uh, what's the name of that school? He went to the, I got it listed here somewhere. He went to, uh, Anyway, he went to this, uh, you know, high, supposedly the best entrepreneur school uh, in uh, the United States, Wellesley, it's, it's next to Wellesley College. I forget the name. Starts with a B. Anyway, uh, he's, uh, you know, quite a. He's a racer, enthusiastic race. Oh, here, here we go. I found, I found the list. Excuse me. Pardon the shuffle of the paper. Babson College, 1982. Uh, before that, he went to Kale. You know, this guy was grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Was put on the elite course, uh, but you know, under his uh, previous guy who was running the company, had to deal with the issue of recalled vehicles in the United States. Uh, so he, he, Toyota, had to go uh, testify before Congress. Um, you know, that's all I have to say about him. I'm sure he'll sell a lot of cars. And I'm sure that he'll, when he's, his children will grow up to run Toyota Company. I don't think there's a chance of a non-Toyota making it to the top. So I wish him lots of luck. Now, isn't uh, isn't isn't he good friends with Ichiro as well? Does that sound right? I have no idea. If he isn't, I'm sure he probably says he is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I really don't know. He's 60 years old. Right. Um, one thing about him, and I guess this would also come as no surprise, was that... Uh, a few years back, the government here had uh, begun some kind of a car tax. It was right around uh, 2008, 2009, when the world financial problems started. I don't right. know if you remember that, Bob, but he single-handedly got the government to uh, waive the car tax for everybody so they could buy more cars. And uh, it always struck me that that was a pretty ingenious move for somebody who owns a car company. Yeah, sure. And it's good for the economy, too, because uh, it gets people, you know, gets people out shopping and buying things. Uh, oh, he raced in this uh, 
this 24-hour race in Germany. It's like a version of Le Mans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's for luxury cars. So he was a driver. So he was, and another guy, uh, <clears throat> raced for the 24 hours. That's kind of, I mean, that's pretty impressive. I don't know about you, but, you know, yeah. race, I, I guess when you're in a, one of these endurance races, you only race, you you keep switching off. You have a team, right? So you drive for four hours and then you rest for four hours, something like that. Is that how it works, Jack? Do you know? Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Uh, and uh, I, yeah, I didn't realize that he himself was such a racing uh, aficionado. But right. uh, it, I mean, Toyota. The length of time that that company has been successful, uh, can you think of a similar Japanese company that's had that good of a run? I mean, even somebody like Sony has been, you know, up and down and sliding here and there. Can you think of another company that's had kind of this kind of a sustained run of years and years of success? Uh, in Japan? Yeah. Uh, the Amaguchi Gumi. <laughs> that is a pretty... Well, it's <laughs> split last year, but they're still making money. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, they've overcome a lot of obstacles, you know, new regulations, police raids, uh, uh, assaults by other gangs, you know, shootouts in the middle of the night, uh, murder attempts. And, you know, they've always been right up there at the top of the top earners in Japan. <laughs> <clears throat> Yes, uh, a few occupational hazards uh, for that uh, group, isn't it? Uh, but that's the way it goes. So yeah, Toyota was also behind the Lexus. All uh, right. So you know the, the Lexus is a great car. So. Have you ever owned a Toyota, Bob? No. Okay. No, I've owned, uh, I've rented Toyotas. I mean, I go back to the States. We go to Europe and spend a summer, go to the States. I always rent a car. So I always try to get a Japanese car because I know they won't break down. Um, so Toyota, Nissan, uh, Corolla, Corona, uh, that sort of thing. All right. Uh, okay, Bob, uh, let's move on and, uh, a bit of a lighter subject here, but something that's interesting nonetheless was uh, recently Japan uh, had a beautiful breast contest and uh, selected a winner amongst uh, several entrants. And uh, wondering uh, what you think of that whole uh, story. Oh, I thought an interesting idea. <laughs> I wonder why it hadn't been done before. Uh, well, I can imagine why, but. I thought it was a really good idea. And the, you know, the judges, most of the ju- majority of the judges in that were, were women. And it was, uh, it wasn't a lingerie company that sponsored these women. So I think it's a good deal. I'm sure there are some people who are just, you know, horribly offended and, you know, will collapse to the ground with vapors at seeing that there was actually a breast. Uh, beautiful breast contest, but you know it is part of the human anatomy, and we can't exactly pretend that they don't exist. <clears throat> so I think I find it rather refreshing. Uh, thought it was a cute idea. What was your opinion of it, Jack? Well, yeah, I mean, I thought it was uh, very interesting, 
And uh, I can only <clears throat> imagine with the uh, political correctness we see back in the States these days, uh, you know, what kind of outrage that would have uh, ensued from it. I mean, do you agree? Yes. Uh, you know, I, 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 let me tell you an off-color story. <laughs> if I right. met Sweeto, I have no censors here <laughs> on this particular network. Uh, a friend of mine was in Rapungi last night where they had a Halloween celebration. And some, there was some guy walking around with, uh, disguised as a penis. And everybody was saying how cute, how wonderful that was. And this friend of mine who was a Canadian said, went up to him and said, you look just like Wiener, you know. Uh, are you going to screw Hillary? <laughs> and there was a, a couple, a foreign couple behind him. Oh, this is really so inappropriate. What a disgusting remark. So it was okay for the guy to walk around disguised as a penis, but you can't say, you know, wieners screw Hillary. Still, you know, it's a people in America are, can seem capable of being set by almost uh, upset by almost anything these days. It's really the country that I grew up in, you know, the era that I became of age was. Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell and telling it like it is and standing up and speaking your mind and blah, blah, blah. You know, the spirit of individualism in America. Now I just see you can't say anything. You're going to walk around with a gag in your mouth or you're going to get in trouble. America has really changed that way. Very strange. Yeah, I I agree with you, Bob, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I agree with you, and, uh, I mean, it just seems to reach, like, new heights of ridiculousness. I, I see the most recent thing now is the commissioner of Major League Baseball is planning to talk to the owner of the Indians about the logo of Chief Wahoo. Right. Yes, I know. It's been, <clears throat> I noticed that all the Indian tribes all over America have been up in arms and Screaming like hell when they're not counting their money from the casinos that they own on the reservation about, you know, being actually being called Indians <clears throat> as they sit there on their Indian reservation. Right. But in Japan, we don't we don't see this type of political correctness to the degree that we do in the States. Do you, do you think that's correct? Uh. No, it's not as uh, extreme as the United States has become. I mean, the left wing has really uh, has become much more powerful than it used to as far as you know, speech control. It's like something out of 1984. I mean, there are things that you can't say. There are words that are in, in Japanese that are considered offensive now that weren't offensive uh, when I first came here. I mean, gaijin is one example, right? That's become uh, rude, considered inappropriate and offensive. So if you refer to a foreigner, you have to say guy kokuji. Uh, so even if a guy, you know, is saying, you know, wants to tell you, you know, say Yankee go home, you'll say guy kokuji go home. You'll say guy go home because of political correctness. But it, it's not as... Uh, the Japanese have always been, uh, I think, more careful in their language about upsetting the feelings of others than Americans have. They have, haven't had this fetish of standing up and, and telling it like it is, like a lot of Americans have had during my lifetime anyway. Uh, that's just uh, 
you know, if you look at uh, do these these annual surveys on what values people consider most important in America, it's uh, individualism right up there at the top. But in Japan, it's a moyari, empathy or wa harmony, and individualism or kojin chugi is way down at the bottom. You know, it's just a society that's non-confrontational and, and takes care to more. And generally speaking, again. <clears throat> takes more care about feelings of others than Americans do until recently. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, it's, not so much that, it's not so much uh, that Americans care about the feelings of others, it's just that they, <clears throat> uh, you know, this uh, victimhood in the States has become a big industry. There's a lot of money involved in lawsuits for people being offended by this, that, and the other thing. So, uh, it's a, it's kind of a reverse thing. You know, you offended me, so I have a right to attack you. Blah, blah, blah. Where in Japan, it's just that you don't offend somebody because it's, uh, it's, <clears throat> it's just common decency. Right. <laughs> Makes right. for, you know, a warmer, more cooperative society. Right. That's oh. what I have to say about that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, let Bob. Let's talk about uh, something interesting that occurred uh, recently, and that was the arrest of uh, former actress Saya Taikagi for possession of marijuana. And uh, it, it's not so much that she was busted for pot, but that uh, she has been a supporter of medicinal marijuana. Uh, recently when she unsuccessfully ran for an election in the upper house. Uh, what, what do you think about this? Well, I thought it was, you know, a little over the top that she lives on this island, you know, Ishigaki-jima, out in the middle of the forest somewhere. So they have this, you know, squad of policemen, <laughs> assault policemen, go down there and, and, raid her house, they have a warrant and they search and they find, you know, a couple of joints and a pipe. <laughs> I mean, what what is that? Where did they get the warrant and why did they do something like that? And, you know, this woman, <clears throat> uh, they do something like that with all the, you know, the TV cameras there. This is widely reported. It makes you wonder. I mean, the, the Yakuza are bringing in, you know, ton of, tons upon tons of uh, methamphetamine and uh, they make such a big deal about this. There's, uh, I know it's illegal in Japan, but you know, medical marijuana has been proven to be highly beneficial. I don't know anybody who's ever died smoking medical marijuana. I know people who, you know, drank themselves to death and who've gotten cancer from smoking, you know, 100 cigarettes a day. But I've never heard of anybody dying from uh, smoking a joint. I know some some of my friends I have back in the States have gotten a little soft in the brain from smoking so much, uh, smoking marijuana so much. But, uh, you know, I've never heard of anybody dying for it. It's not like, uh, you know, heroin. There's no such thing as a marijuana overdose. There is a heroin overdose. You can, <clears throat> cocaine can also kill you uh, if you use too much of it. So... I, you know, I, uh, I just don't understand why they're making, uh, 
an issue out of this. I don't know how many votes that she got in the last election, how close she came to being elected, and whether this had something to do with her future <clears throat> dimming her future political process prospects. I don't know, but they caught they raided the police department, <laughs> raided her home. Her car and the end she runs and confiscated several dozen grams of dried marijuana as well as a pipe and rolling paper believed to have used to smoke the drug. Oh, terrible. Investigators said they found traces of use on the pipe. Well, what is Japan coming to? I So it seems to be, you know, they have some political... Uh, motivation behind this. I don't know. It just seems to me overkill. Uh, the, uh, I feel sorry for her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like uh, your kind of quintessential hit job to try and ruin somebody, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, you know, there's very little education about the, the benefits of medical marijuana. So the fact that she's associated uh, you know, drug user arrested for it, you know, that'll ruin her life forever in this country. You don't see Japanese city talking about, you know, you should change the laws and allow everybody to smoke marijuana. It's just a non-issue. That's just unthinkable. It will never happen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. Okay, Bob, uh, let's move on and... Uh, Last time we talked about the uh, very sad death of the young Dentsu worker who was uh, passing was attributed to Karoshi uh, overwork, uh, more than 100 hours of overtime a month uh, for several months. And uh, so Dentsu obviously has uh, taken a real black eye uh, PR-wise over this, and they've instituted a new program where the lights go out at their offices at 10 p.m., Right. as a way to get people out of the office and prevent this type of uh, occurrence from happening again. What uh, what say you about that? 10 p.m.? Why not 6 p.m.? Uh, yeah. Why not 7 p.m.? Why 10 p.m.? And uh, that means if you come to work at 9, you, you still be allowed to work for 11 hours every day. And this woman was working till midnight. So I don't see that's a big change. You know what's going to happen at Densu? is uh, <clears throat> people are going to be <clears throat> informed uh, in so many words that it would be beneficial to their career and their future at Dentsu if they showed up for work at 5 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and stayed until 10 o'clock. Uh, you know, I've seen these things before. There's always been some somebody dies from Karoshi, the Japanese call it, death from overwork. And I've seen this uh, this discussion, uh, this phenomena going on now for 30 years. And, you know, nothing ever changes, really. I mean, it's still people still work as much as they do. The government says they hand out their reports, uh, employment, you know, what uh, how many hours Japanese. And I think the, the last reports that Japanese work 38 hours a week, right? Because the contract says nine o'clock to five o'clock. And those are government guidelines in some cases. 
But the reality of it is that the employer will say, listen, if you value your future at this company, you'll ignore those guidelines. You'll forget about what the contract says and don't expect to get any overtime. You just stay and do the job. That's how you'll succeed in this company. That's what goes on in, you know, in Japanese companies everywhere. Uh, so I don't think you're going to change the culture. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'd like to see a little survey of how many hours people actually work now that this 10 p.m. thing is. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, Bob, that you say this because uh, there was a story in the Asahi Shimbun just yesterday uh, essentially saying that uh, workers at Dentsu were, were kind of informed to manipulate their hours downward. So that uh, even if they had worked like 100 hours or so of overtime, right. that they were told to say that it was personal time at work and that uh, they, you know, they weren't really working even though they were there. Right. Yes, I, I believe that. I'm not surprised at all. Of course, I've seen some companies where, you know, people will they'll sit there, you know, <clears throat> and play around with their computers and their or cell phones all day and then suddenly find work to do when five o'clock comes, <laughs> comes around uh, because they don't want to be the first ones to leave and obey they want to give the impression that they're working hard i've, I've seen that with my own eyes right and uh you know something that always uh, every time one of these incidents happen in this the, this cultural thing of uh, pressuring people to stay at the office or uh, making them think they that it's better for them to stay at the office for their career like you said and then i keep going back to these kind of worker surveys we've seen in the past uh, in our country which say that after 8 hours worker productivity goes down to zero right and uh so uh like you said, I mean, uh, I mean, okay, maybe it's different here. Maybe they are working, but uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't, you know, what, what do you blame this? Uh, what do you blame this kind of uh, ongoing uh, issue? It doesn't, you know, and, and Dins is not the only company. There's other companies where it's the same thing. It's just, it's just a cultural thing where the work is actually more important than the family or anything else. Is that what you think? Yes, it's a combination of those things. Nobody wants to be the nail that sticks up because it gets hammered down. Uh, I've seen it. My, I've worked in Japanese companies. I've seen this dynamic. People in the, in the department yeah, that I worked in at one company stayed there until the boss left, the head of the department. And so the uh, if he stayed until 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, then everybody in the department stayed. And sometimes, you know, he would stay until his superior left. <laughs> he would go home. That sort of thing. And, uh, you know, nobody, and if the boss wasn't there for some reason, you know, nobody wanted to be the first one to get up and leave because they would be looked upon by the other members. <clears throat> Their fellow workers as, you know, being less than serious or selfish or not having the interest of the company at heart, blah, blah, blah. So that was part of it. They're kind of gaman kurabe, as the Japanese say. Uh, so, you know, there's just a lot of social pressure. Nobody wants to be to be the nail that sticks up. Uh, nobody wants to be uh, <clears throat> to violate the social norms. And I think that's what's at play here. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a good thing. You know, Americans, their secretary will stop typing in mid sentence the moment it's five o'clock. She's she's all gone. I'm out of here, baby. But you know, I kind of admire the Japanese uh, dedication, you know, uh, to work, which is something that Americans don't quite have. I mean, I, they work hard and all that, but there's this feeling I'm doing it for myself and my family. But in Japan, you have to consider the larger context. <clears throat> but uh, there, there's got to be some kind of a healthy balance in between the uh, the two extremes, don't you agree? Well, yes, but if you're you know living in some tiny apartment with a wife and two, you know. Uh, screaming infants, <laughs> you know, then you you say, you might say, well, why go home? And the wife would say, well, don't come home <laughs> because it's too crowded here, you know, come stay out until after we go to sleep or so. I mean, I've heard people say that. I've heard Japanese workers, you know, talk about that sort of thing. Uh, you know, people don't have, in America, everybody in, in Manhattan, uh, the publishing world that I deal with all the time, you know, five o'clock comes, these guys are out and they're on the train to New Haven or wherever, uh, their houses are and it's home to the wife and kids. You know, they don't go out for a few drinks and socialize, not like the Japanese do. And one reason I think for that is that Americans have really nice homes to go to. Right. The Japanese have smaller cramped quarters, whether it be at an apartment or a house. I mean, you just don't have these big luxurious spaces. So it's a place to sleep for them rather than enjoy, you know. Uh, uh, so that's one element. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into why it's different, but I think I've, I've hit upon all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Bob, uh, something that uh, was announced just this morning was, or pardon me, just yesterday, was that the uh, Justice Ministry is planning to conduct its first ever survey to identify forms of discrimination faced by foreigners living in Japan. Right. Um, they're going to survey 18,500 foreigners in 37 municipalities in Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, and other prefectures. Uh <laughs> What do you think about this? I mean, is this uh, is this a positive development? Uh, will will it make any difference? Well, maybe. I mean, it's good to discuss. Uh, it's you know, it's always been a problem. You can't say that uh, Japanese are exactly welcoming of foreigners. I mean, some people are, but you know, you see, I see these surveys that. <clears throat> annual surveys that the government takes about feelings towards foreigners. The Japanese National Character Institute, for example. And, you know, traditionally it's been like two-thirds of the people don't want anything to do with foreigners. You know, they don't want to associate with them. Uh, which is okay. I mean, they basically leave you alone. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they don't go out of their way to make your life miserable. Right? Well, there's some exceptions to that. <clears throat> And, you know, the ones that do want to associate with you is, is, it can make your life, you know, very rewarding. Uh, you know, in t- want to associate with you, the daytime population of 12 million, that means there are 4 million people out there who want to associate with a foreigner. So that's not too bad. Where you see discrimination come in is areas like renting an apartment, you know, some, 
uh, most many real estate agencies, Fudosan in Japan, won't deal with foreigners because people, landlords, Japanese landlords don't want them. They're too noisy. They don't understand Japanese etiquette. They don't know the rules about taking out the garbage, about separating the garbage. All these little things that go up to make, uh, you know, a well-functioning, close-knit Japanese community and the foreigner <coughs> comes in and just breaks all the rules and upsets everybody. Uh, they used to do that to me in, in Kamakura. I lived there for 25 years <laughs> and I put, sometimes I put the wrong garbage out and some, you know, somebody, they, you know, they had somebody who was the neighborhood chief. This woman's about 85 years old. She used to pick up my garbage and bring it back and put it in front of my, my door. You know, so no, no, this is not today. This is tomorrow. You made a mistake. Uh, but I mean, that's just the, the Japanese are very, you know, efficient at running their own communities. And uh, uh, you know, if you don't know the customs and the rules, and naturally you're going to upset people. So I can understand that part. But, and, you know, there, uh, there's probably some nightclubs, Yakuza run nightclubs that don't want foreigners, uh, to come in for obvious reasons. Uh, the language that, uh, that just, it upsets the ambience of the place. You know? <laughs> uh, what else? Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, probably the most discrimination, most discriminated group is uh are the stateless koreans in japan right. Mm -hmm. the right wing really goes after them they're always having demonstrations and protesting outside their offices uh i mean uh, i think we went through this before but after the war after the occupation there was like 600,000 koreans in japan and the government said you could either by this time the uh Korean Peninsula split into two countries, the ROK and the DPRK in the north. And government said, you have your choice. You can become a citizen of South Korea or North Korea, or you become a citizen of Japan. One-third became citizens of Japan. One-third became citizens of ROK. And the other third, uh, who were, had relatives in, in DPRK, North Korea, uh, had sympathies lying with the government, didn't want especially a uh, passport from the DPRK because it's no good, you can't use it anymore. Uh, and, uh, except maybe China or Russia. But, uh, so, they, uh, lost my train of thought. So they, uh, so these people became stateless she said their argument was we will remain stateless in Japan and we're waiting for the day when North and South can reunify and Korea can be one country again. And these people that have dressed in Korean costumes and, and send their children to Korean schools, these are the people that are attacked by the North Korean, by the, uh, the uh, right wingers in Japan. So if you're going to live in Japan, you know, you've got to follow Japanese customs and laws and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that's where the most discrimination is that I've seen. Mm -hmm. uh, that I've seen personally, anyway. Right. Uh, I know, <clears throat> you know, there's little annoyances. I think that uh, people involved in day labor, pe the 
foreigners, you know, piped in to work on uh, construction sites. I see, you know, guys from Bangladesh or the Philippines or whatever. I mean, I can't imagine that they're warmly received by the Japanese. Uh, I mean, if you're a foreigner and you, you know, you got a good job and uh, work in a company downtown and live in a decent place and, and you speak Japanese, Japanese, you know, will basically accept you, leave you alone. They'll tolerate you anyway. Uh, but it's, you know, another you know, certain class of people that will have trouble. Mm-hmm. But interesting to see what the uh, uh, results of the survey say. Yeah. 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 What was the, uh, who's the government official who said uh, after the Japan was it? This is like 15 years ago. Japan was in the midst of one of its Kokusaika efforts, you know, international. The head of the or the spokesman for the foreign ministry said Japanese just they really don't like foreigners. <laughs> they so they're just too different. Sorry. Uh, oh boy. I I think this I, I just think that's changing. I, I told you uh, I saw a sur- there's a survey that the. Uh, um, Nihon Seikaku Kenkyujo does every year. And I asked this question, would you let your child marry a foreigner? And uh, I remember back in the early 90s, uh, one survey said, uh, 46% said no, absolutely not. The other, you know, 22 or 3% said uh Yes, okay, and the rest didn't know. But then 20 years later, the last one I saw, it just completely reversed. And this one said, yes, 51% of the people interviewed said it was okay for their child to marry a foreigner. They would welcome it. And it was back to like 26% said no. So that's a big shift. And you got uh, 10% of the marriages in uh, Shinjuku are foreign, international marriages. Uh, so... It's changing. I think they're being, uh, I think this generation of Japanese is more open towards the guy Kokuji than, uh, than previous ones. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, Bob, let's uh, talk about Hall of Fame pitcher Suneo Horiuchi and your memories of him. Yeah. What a guy. Bad boy Taro. <laughs> Boy, he, he was something else. I remember I was here in his first year. He broke in and, uh, forget what year. Oh, 1966. That's right. Um, he was 16 and two and he was, the Giants were just going crazy. They're running away with the league, but he upset everybody because he had this habit when he pitched, he would throw so hard that his cap spun around. So then he went back and resumed his position on the mound. You know, his cap was pointed off to the side. And, you know, it looked like something out of a kiddie's manga, a kiddie's, you know, comic book. And he was, you know, because the Giants are always supposed to be these, you know, clean, well-behaved, well-dressed, well-groomed gentlemen. You know, he upset the image of the Giants. And he also used to spit on the mound, you know, big gobs of spit between pitches and the announcers were, you know, we're very upset about that. Editorials. Was like, Who is this kid? 
and uh, why don't we learn some manners? <clears throat> but he was the best pitcher in the league that year. I think he won the Salamoto Award, and the next year he kind of sloughed off. So they sent him down to the, the farm team because he was uh, uh, because he wasn't practicing hard enough, and he was. Uh, uh, he wasn't pitching well, and he kept sneaking out of the dormitory, the Giants' dormitory at night. The story goes that he would grab his shoes and he would walk backwards. Uh, so if he was caught by, you know, the dormitory superintendent, he could say he was coming home <laughs> instead of going out. But he, you know, he would receive several beatings. You know, he was hit with bamboo sticks and all that because of his attitude, very, you know, rebellious. And uh, it got so bad that he had to he had to go into the farm team manager's office, the Nigun. He had to get down on his hands and knees and put his forehead on the floor and apologize and promise that he would shape up before they would let him come back up to the the first team. And he was, uh, you know, the Giants' ace for several years, but he was always getting into. Uh, Trouble because of his attitude. His nickname was Bad Boy Taro, Akutaro. And I remember one game, he was ahead 10 to nothing. And with two out in the fifth inning, he's one out away from getting the official win. <coughs> and Kawakami, who was the manager, took him out of the game. Oh. Just to deprive him of the, the victory. Just to teach him a lesson, put him in his place. Uh, didn't he, so, uh, Bob, didn't he hit two home runs in the Japan Series game in which he pitched? Does that sound right? No, what he did was he pitched a no-hitter and hit three home runs. Three, pardon me. Yeah, right. I mean, that's got to be the most, the greatest. That's a regular, that was a regular season game? Yeah, it was, it was one of these games at the end of the season, one of these makeup games. So right. When they're, you know, playing rookies and. Farm play, you know, it doesn't. All the, you know, the the uh, pennant winners had been decided, and standings had been fixed. They were just playing out the string. I think it was one of those games. But still, mm -hmm. that was a, like the greatest single performance of any baseball player in history. I think a no hitter and three home runs in the same game. That's right. I mean, you have to pitch a perfect game, or pitch a no hitter and hit four home runs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he was uh, he was something. He used to say he used to say I'm a pitching genius. He said, I I can win without training. I'm the atheist. Which of course is the last thing that you say in Japan. So I you know, I liked him for that. I hated him because he was on the Giants and I couldn't stand the Yamiri Giants, but I could have liked his rebelliousness. Well, his his philosophy on pitching is pretty ironic as he went on to be the Giants pitching coach for many years. Yes, I know. And when he was manager, they had one of their worst seasons in history. He was a disaster as a manager. Uh, but there you go. Hey, uh, just a couple days ago, uh, Bob, uh, Trey Hillman, the former manager of the uh, Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters, took a job with a team in South Korea called the SK Wyverns. Uh, he's going to manage their team this coming season. Did you see that, first of all? 
No, I, I no, I didn't know. It's the first time I've heard. Okay. So uh, he left Houston. Huh? Yeah, he left as the bench coach of the Astros after a couple seasons, and he's uh, going to be managing this team in uh, Incheon, South Korea. Do you think it's possible that one day he could return here to be a manager in Japan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they love him. It'd be kind of hard now that they love him. You put him fighters that won the, the Japan series. You know, they can't very well tell Kuriyama, you know, thanks for your service. I guess you could, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't be quite fair. But uh, I know the, you know, he could have stayed. He, the only reason he left Japan before, he was very successful as manager in Nippon Ham, was because his kids wanted to go to high school in, in the United States, in Texas. Uh, his son was, uh, you know, was aiming for a football scholarship at the University of Texas. So that's the reason that they left. If it hadn't been for that, he would have stayed. He loved it. They loved him. So it's it's possible, though, that he could manage a different team in Japan, don't you think? Uh, sure. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't like uh, Trey Hillman. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, real popular uh a real popular manager and a very straight shooter as a as a man. Yeah. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't. I can't speak about uh, South Korean baseball. I don't have any kind of deep knowledge there. But uh, you Onion know, Haseo. what's that? Onion Haseo. Yobuseo, Mekjujuseo, and Kamsanmida. Those are the four expressions I know in Korean. Hello, how are you? <clears throat> Give me a beer, please, and thank you. That's four more than I know, so uh, you're ahead of the game. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, interest, but it was uh, it was quite an interesting development that uh, he chose to take this job, and uh, he signed a, a couple-of-year deal. Uh, I want to say it was for about 600000 a year with a $400,000 signing bonus, so... Uh, not bad work if you can get it. No, very good. Jeez. I wonder if he needs an assistant coach. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we've reached the top of the hour again and uh, another informative session. So uh, before we go, I want to remind all our listeners that Bob's books are available on Amazon and iBooks. You can email Robert Whiting's Japan at robertwhitingsjapan at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to Robert Whiting's Japan uh, through iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And uh, you can read Bob's column, uh, Japanese, in the print edition only, in Yukon Fuji every Tuesday. Uh, what's going in this evening's paper, Bob? Uh, I th well, I just finished writing a column about Trump and Clinton. And uh, their affinity to sports, how uh, Trump, uh, he cheats at golf, and he, uh, you know, some of his, his best friends are Pete Rose and Mike Tyson, who've been in prison for gambling and rape, uh, respectively. Uh, how uh, he's not, I said he's not really a sports fan, you know, because he's too much of a fan of himself. Uh, but uh, and but Hillary Clinton is just as bad. She's duplicitous, you know. She says she's a Chicago Cubs fan, and then she ran for the state, uh, first <clears throat> ran, moved to New York, and ran for U.S. Senate, 
And she said in an interview with Katie Cork that I've been a Yankees fan all my life. <laughs> uh, so I wrote about that and what would happen if each one, or, you know, one, <clears throat> what happened depending on who won the election. And I also came across an interesting statistic in the 19, uh, World Series that had been held during a presidential election. Uh, 16 of them were followed a pattern whereby the American League, if the American League won the World Series, then a Republican would be elected president. And if the <coughs> National League team won, then a Democrat candidate would be elected president. So if Cleveland Indians win, the World Series, Donald Trump will be the next president. The Cubs pull it out, there will be Hillary Clinton. That's a, that's a scientific survey right there. That's right. You heard it. You heard it here. heard it first from Robert White. Okay. Uh, and uh, finally, before we go, I uh, just want to say hello. Uh, we've had listeners uh, to Robert White in Japan in more than 100 countries uh, over the past uh, 16 months or so. And, just wanted to say hello to a listener in a new country, and that is Guadalupe. Wow. The island of Guadalupe. So hello if you're out there, and uh, thank you for your support. And uh, we look yeah. forward to, to your continued support. So, Bob, uh, thanks for another great session, and uh, let's do it again soon. All right. Thank you, Jack. Sure. All right.